Hi everyone, this is Walter Poppy, the host of the Go-To-Market Podcast, where we break down go-to-market strategies and tactics with investors, founders, and revenue operators. In today's episode, we have Mark Rabaj, Managing Director of Stage 2 Capital, Professor of Harvest Business School, former CRO of HubSpot, and the author of the book, Sales Acceleration Formula. We dig into how Mark decides on what to pursue professionally, the advice he gives his students, then we dig into the science of scaling where Mark is answering the questions of when to scale and how fast in a more systematic way. If you like what you hear and want to help us out, please subscribe and write us a review to help us reach more listeners like you. And now, on to the show. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine run. All right, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Walter. Great to be here. Yeah, excellent. I want to first want to thank uh, Sean Poe over at Emerging Leader Syndicate to, for the introduction and want to kind of kick off for a little context of, you know, those don't, who don't know you kind of give you a little bit of a context of who Mark is. So uh, Mark, former CRO of HubSpot, retook uh, it from zero to 100 million, author of a bestseller book, Sales Acceleration Formula, uh, professor over at Harvard Business School, the MBA program, and most recently, Managing Director at Stage 2 Capital. So the reason why I bring all that up is that you hear all those different things that you've done. Um, but before that, you have to make a decision on what you want to pursue. So to kick off, like what goes through your mind or how do you think about what you're going to be screening and what's your decision-making process? Yeah, good question, Walter. Um, hmm. It's interesting that over the decades, it's shifted from a very, very planned you know, proactive and very specific planning process to a much more reactive serendipitous process. Um, and so, you know, just in terms of like the, I think the, the, the intuition, I suppose, behind my career path, as you pointed out in, uh, in our past discussions, um, you know, I was, a, I was a mechanical engineering by training and spent the first couple of years uh, of my career coding. Um, but during that journey, I mean, this is the late nineties, um, it's interesting that like no one was talking about going into entrepreneurship when I was in college, it just wasn't as accessible. It was, it was kind of like, uh, what rich board people did kind of, you know, <laughs> right. and, and, and so much has changed, I think for the better in the last 20 plus years, but when the dot com boom and bust occurred, you know, at the beginning of that, I was staffed on a project, um, for a startup and, and just, that was a pivotal moment for me. I just really felt like um, it connected. You know, I, I just, I just love the pace and and the potential impact and the potential upside and the the, the culture that you found within these organizations. Um, and I kind of never look back from that. You know, I, I I quit my my bigger company job and joined a startup in New York that didn't do exceptionally well, but but. I, got a taste of what it was like full time. And, and again, that, that passion and love for the, um, for, for, for that career, um, continued, um, decided to go to business school to kind of learn about it and, mm -hmm. and try to enhance my own position in the ecosystem. So, uh, went to MIT Sloan, which I, I really enjoyed the, the innovative culture they have there. And I started like, a a bunch of companies when I was there, just like as side projects and working with students in the engineering departments, et cetera. Um, 
raise some money for an idea in between my my years in that summer for a social networking company before social networking was even like a thing. Um, and, you know, it, it was cool to be a founder and get a taste of that. I, I, you know, that just made a lot of mistakes and couldn't get my series A, but through that process had met uh, Darmesh. He, he and I had sat together in a class when he was kind of dreaming up the idea of HubSpot and I was dreaming up the idea for my company. And he, he really enjoyed me and, 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 invested in my company and as part of that asked that I help HubSpot one day a week and so when I was after I was running you know my company for a year or so and helping HubSpot one day a week you know I I was in a tricky spot and they were taken off without without knowing it where it started to recruit me to be like the fourth employee and first salesperson and sales leader and then I just jumped on to get a paycheck for four months you know so um so, you know, 10 years later, we're like ringing the bell in the New York Stock Exchange. It's just kind of like, that's, that's the weird <laughs> stuff that happens out there, right? It's like, and that was quite a ride, obviously. And then wrote, wrote the book largely because like um, a best-selling author, Jill Conrath, asked to write a book with me. And I'd never, I was like, Jill, I'm not a very good writer. And, and she's like, it's okay, let's just go to my publicist. And when I wrote a sample chapter, she's like, oh, this is great. Like, you should write your own book and then we'll write a book later. So I wrote the book and I got an HBS professor to like write a blurb on the back. And they recruited me into like, they were like, you should join the faculty here. And I'm like, you didn't even really, you didn't even accept me as a student. Like, why are you asking to be a teacher? And so that just seemed like a really logical place to rest my hat for like a number of years. And then I was just helping startups haphazardly and met my co-founder Jay from Bessemer. And he had this idea for this venture capital firm. And, you know, so, so anyway, the, it's a long story, Walter, but I think you kind of see here that as a type A person, you know, coming out of high school and college, like probably many of the folks here listening are, I always had this like five and 10 year plan. And I was like so specific and so like, I don't want to say narrow minded, but like honed in. Mm -hmm. And as I reflect on the last decade of my career and all the things that um, were the biggest successes and had the biggest impact, from HubSpot to joining HBS, to writing sales acceleration formula, to starting stage two capital, those weren't planned. Was, I had no plan to go into sales, no plan to join HubSpot, no plan to write the book, no plan to teach in college, no plan to be a venture capitalist. And yet they, they're like, you know, the most probably important things for my career. And so that it's just, that's kind of what I tell my students now is like, have a plan, but be open-minded, mm. right? Because, because oftentimes the, the most important answers to your questions occur when you're not asking the question, right? Yeah. And so it's just, I, I think the, the big thing for me though, is just a high level principle and theme with which professionally is I love entrepreneurship and I just want to give back and help the ecosystem. And as I evaluate ideas, I evaluate it from that perspective as what kind of impact does this, does this platform uniquely allow me to make on the ecosystem? That's great. So that principle is that, did that come from reflection or yeah. was it always there? Yeah. It wasn't something I saw in a book or anything. It's just like, again, I, you know, I think it was the incremental from the age of 23 discovering entrepreneurship mm -hmm. and being curious about it to the age of, 25 to 30 immersing myself in it and and falling deeply in love with it professionally 
to like, you know, having a blessed opportunity to, to have something like HubSpot, which was like, just, you know, it's almost like winning the Super Bowl. You know what I mean? Right. Like to, to be able to look back on, 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 as an entrepreneur on something like that is just, you know, it's a similar feeling. And then now the opportunity to, to like have all these amazing platforms around me from, from, you know, uh, from Harvard Business School to international conference stages to a venture capital pl platform to to help the next generation of entrepreneurs, right? So. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great guiding principle. You know, you mentioned the, the whole writing process that it wasn't like something that you originally did. So obviously you've now done it. You're, you're beginning to write another one, uh, Science of Scaling, which we'll dive yeah. into. What is it about that process that you like? What do you gain from that? Not a lot. <laughs> no, just kidding. you know it's i don't know I, i'm not one it's just it's it's it doesn't come naturally to me i got like you should see the first version i write it's such a mess but then you have to go back and hammer it hammer it hammer it and um the, no honestly the thing i love is the impact that comes out the end so i know it's i've already kind of said that and i was thinking about your question before and that's actually absolutely it. it's the only reason i wrote um the sales acceleration forum. I donate all the proceeds mm -hmm. to this awesome nonprofit called build.org that, that uses entrepreneurship to help young kids. Um, so it's really just the impact. And that's what I love. I mean, every day I open up my LinkedIn messages and there's like 10 of them that are like, oh, I read your book and here's the impact it had on my company and hey, you made me a better entrepreneur. Um, so, so that's the motivation is um, I didn't really want, you know, I didn't intend to write a second book. I'm not like trying to like, you know, do anything other than the last seven years or so, um, I've just been hanging out with a lot of different startups and mm -hmm. I'm seeing a pattern and a framework that's extremely helpful so far to many of them that is not talked about. And it's a, it's almost like an obligation that I need to kind of put that out there. Yeah. I, th I think that's going to be a good segue. It's a two part question. So first is how do you narrow down? Like you're, you recognize there's a problem. So how do you narrow down the problem or a question that you want to focus on? Yeah. The follow-up to that would be is, what is the framework or mental model that you're doing to address that problem? You know, yeah, the, sure. the Harvard Business School opportunity came about, sounded like a good idea to, you know, build the first sales and teach the first sales courses in the MBA level. Just huge impact, right? Like, you know, most of the cases taught at every business school in the world are published at Harvard Business School. And now I've written 10. And so it's not only are you, like, are, are you crafting how sales is taught at one of the best business schools in the world, but you're, you're significantly influencing how sales is taught everywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's just like, wow, what a pinch me moment, you know, to be able to do that. Yeah. And the other thing that's really cool about it is there's a responsibility requirement and encouragement to stay very active in practice, especially for me, not being a tenure track faculty, but instead a practitioner faculty. Um, and I, I basically chose to spend a day, a week with a startup every quarter because that's my passion so that was it there was no like you know where to, there was no like desire to write a book or anything like that but right about four or five years into that process having worked with you know dozens of startups intimately for mm -hmm. the first time in my career not being dedicated to one but instead intimately spread across many i had an opportunity to reflect on patterns with those that became unicorns and those that were duds and those reflections led to uh, extremely common theme on when those companies chose to scale sales and how fast. Okay. Like two critical questions. 
as mm-hmm. an entrepreneur. Are you ready to scale sales right now? And if so, how fast? Critical. And yet, ask entrepreneurs and boards and investors how they think about those questions. And I just don't think they're that rigorous or substantive, the answers. And that, that's kind of what I found was, was those that navigated those questions, especially during the scale stage, was the difference between unicorn and dud. Interesting. So, so when you're saying rigorous and it wasn't that, what, what were some of the, the definitions? What were you hearing? Once we get to a million in revenue, once we get to a million in revenue, we should add 20 reps the next month. That's seriously how people do it. Interesting. And what's the problem with that? (laughs) Uh, Lots of them. So first off, yeah, clicking below a million in revenue, there's one, you know, there's a lot of variations on that. Did you get there by having like 50 customers and they all love your product and they're all retaining? Or did you get there because you sign up like 50 a month and half of them cancel like a year later, right? Right. That's a huge issue. Um, So, you know, the revenue line is not necessarily product market fit. It doesn't justify that like you are adding value to a large degree of your customers. So it's a huge issue. Um, And then the other problem is when when it comes time to scale, like many entrepreneurs and I think investors and boards as well underappreciate what it takes to mass hire a bunch of salespeople like they attempt to, right? You're, you're sitting around, you're like, you made it to a million dollars. You have 20 people in your company you have three salespeople. They raise a big round and literally they try to hire 20 salespeople in the next month. And they just have to like, just start doing the mental math on that. Okay. Like how many, how many first round interviews was that to get to 20 good hires? 150? Who's doing that? And where are you finding these 150 candidates? And when you hire the 20 people, who's going to train them and who's going to manage them? Are you going to have a 23 to one ratio of your manager rep? Or are you just going to promote someone haphazardly or take someone off the street? And then how are you going to feed them with demand? Like last month you had three reps and you generated hundred leads and they cold called and generated 50 other opportunities. Now you have 23 reps. What do you, was marketing going to 23 X your marketing overnight? I mean, it's just... It's not that hard to get to the intuition about it, but we just aren't there as an ecosystem yet. Right. So, and I, and I think, you know, if you kind of start digging into um, science of scaling, right, that you kind of present a framework for people to kind of fall through a journey. Mm-hmm. So we'll focus on the go-to-market day, like trying to answer those questions. Um, but I think to give context for people who are listening to this, uh, let's talk about like, what are the top one or two things that they should take away from the product market fit part of yeah. science of scaling? Yeah. So just to, to back up one second, you know, what is the science of scaling? You know, we boiled it down to three sequential phases, product market fit, go to market fit and and then growth and milk. Okay. And so it's interesting with product market fit. Like I, I think Eric Reese and lean startup and Steve blank and all, you know, they've done an amazing job over 15 years to educate the ecosystem on the concept of product market fit. And the fact that like we shouldn't be selling vaporware before we have a product developed and the concept of MVP and rapid agile development and all that kind of stuff. But the problem is like when you do ask an entrepreneur, um, when are you ready to scale? And they say product market fit, kudos, great answer. But then the problem is when you double click in and say, well, what, what is product market fit? You get a lot of different answers. And, and as we said earlier, a lot of them are hinged on revenue production, which I, mm-hmm. I don't think is really a good representation of product market fit. Um, I think the best definition out there is defined by Sean Ellis, who says, 
if you survey your customers and at least 40% say they can't live without your product, then you have product market fit. Good. You know, hinged on product value and the, the, the value it's creating. Mm -hmm. And also it's very quantifiable. Right. Great. I think the problem is, um, you know, surveys are riddled with false positive results. I mean, right. you and I take them all the time. It's like when a, a friend that's an entrepreneur sends me a survey, I'm like, of course I'm going to say nice things about their product, right? right? Like I've, you know, so that that's been an issue. And and instead, what I what I encourage is is to lean into customer retention. I mean, these are these are customers who have now been sold. They use your product, and now they chose to repay you, right? Mm -hmm. And so. I think that's a much stronger metric, but it takes a long time for retention to surface, sometimes a year. So what we have to do is we have to come up with leading indicators to retention. And um, I found that those leading indicators do differ by venture, by, by company, mm -hmm. but I, I like to structure them in, in the following format. Uh, P percent of customers do E event and T time. So it's, it, it, it narrows it down to three variables, P, E, and T. I think like Slacks was pretty close to like, if, if 70% of their customers sent 2000 team messages within 30 days, that's pretty mm -hmm. solid, right? It's a collaborative software uh, system. 70% of customers send 2000 team messages in the first 30 days of their lifespan. I would say, wow, damn, that's product market fit. If you can pull that off. And it's so, yeah. it's so directive to the customer success and sales team and product team as to like what the North star is a much better North star than a million dollars in revenue. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think Dropbox was kind of like 85% of customers back up their files within one hour. And I know HubSpots was 75% uh, of customers use five or more features in the platform within 60 days. That, that we, we actually studied that across like tens of thousands of customers. And that actually correlated very strongly with long-term retention. That's the product market fit is it's the, the key action to sum it all up, Walter, is you should define your lead indicator of, of retention. What is it right. that you can see in the first 30 days of your customer's lifespan that if it happens, 95% of those customers will retain for many years. And if it doesn't, a lot of them will cancel. That's and great. if that happens, you have product market fit. So, so if that's a guiding principle and you think about the demand gen on the side of it and this, in the pre-sales part of it, uh, I've heard to a previous episode where you talk about, Hey, you need to set up customers for expectations. So we're setting them up for success yes. in order to lead it. Can, can you kind of talk a little bit more about what is that process like to yeah. set up your customers for success and doing unscalable things? Yeah, exactly. So the whole one part of the framework product market fit, then go to market fit, then growth and moat is to help an organization define their key North star at this moment. And what I'm arguing is at this stage, make, you know, this lead indicator of customer retention your North star, not revenue. Mm. Um, and the other objective of the um, framework is it has, it, 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 once you understand the phase you're in, that has dramatic implications on optimal go-to-market system design. Okay, meaning like what type of reps should you hire? How should you comp them? What should your pricing model be? What type of customer should you go after? What kind of sales playbook should you run or go to market playbook? And so at this point, like don't, don't talk to me about like your optimal pricing model or your sales comp plan or like whether you should be cold calling or doing content marketing. Like it, all we need to do is get like five to 10 customers a month into this thing. And, and see if you can make them successful. 
So we don't need a scalable demand gen channel right now. Like it's like you should have a strong enough network all right, or just go get an advisory board or whatever to get to like 50 introductions and bring on some customers. We don't, that's not scalable, but we don't need, yes, to your point, Walter, like, you know, Paul Graham's, you know, the founder of Y Combinator is like words of wisdom, like do unscalable things early is perfect right, right now. Right. Yep. Um, we don't, the pricing model, it's like, I like to encourage entrepreneurs to say at this moment, like after you do some good discovery on the buyer needs, be like, Walter, it sounds like, you know, we've started to, to dream up this MVP and it sounds like it's perfectly in line with everything you told me. We're going to be, we're going to be charging 30,000 a year for this thing, but we're just looking for five beta customers to give a 90% discount to. Mm-hmm. I don't care about price, unless it's a price optimization play, which rarely it is. I just want them, I'm pricing for commitment, not for profitability. Okay. So um, I just need them to like put something on the table so that they'll actually take it seriously and try it out. And the comp plan doesn't matter either. The rep at this point, you don't need the coin operator rep. Your 10th hire is way different than your first. Mm-hmm. Like a key part of your first rep hire is to have them try out your product and then give your engineering team feedback. You don't, you don't interview your 10th rep with that, but that's key for your first rep. Because the learning they're going to bring is more important than the revenue, mm-hmm. right? That's your first hire that's going to talk to customers all day. So they better be a good, you know, they better be able to pattern recognize and then communicate that to the rest of the company, right? So that, that's all very different than as we progress in the framework and we're in the growth mm-hmm. stage, very different type of hire, you know, and, and we can move on to go to market and, and contrast yeah. it. But, but like, hopefully that, that makes sense, Walter, of like yeah. what? Now that you're in product market fit phase and your North star is, you know, P percent of customers doing E event and T time has a dramatic implication on your go-to-market system design. No, absolutely. So let's go ahead and contrast that to the growth stage. What, yeah. are, what, what is kind of your, what is now the, the new guiding principle yeah. and how does that, uh, you know, fall into the rest of the company? Yeah. So we can't go to growth mode. Yeah. We got to do go-to-market fit. Okay. So right. product, if we do accomplish product market fit, you know, said we've, we've done it quantitatively, but just explain subjectively. It means we're just really good at bringing on customers and making them successful. Mm-hmm. We're like really good at that. We do that most of the time now and go to market fit. You have to do that profitably and scalably. Okay. Like we, mm-hmm. we just said do unscalable things. It's so hard to dream up a, a business idea and to get like 70 to 80% of your customers to actually succeed on your offering. That's right. so hard. That, so we're throwing everything right. in the kitchen sink at it. Now, before we scale, we got to make sure we can do it profitably and scalably. And in, in at least our world, Walter, of software and SaaS, we often use unit economics. In fact, in, mo- in a lot of worlds, you know, it doesn't have to be restricted to software and SaaS. You would use unit economics to describe this. Why unit economics, not like gap accounting profitability? Because gap accounting profitability includes like costs that are not going to scale as you scale. They include like overhead and that kind of stuff. And unit economics allows us to isolate the costs to only the costs that are going to scale as we scale. Okay. And so that makes sense. It's like sales costs, marketing costs, customer success costs, support costs, that kind of stuff. We don't necessarily have to scale our product and engineering team, nor our finance team proportionately to our revenue scale. right? Right. But these other things, that's what unit economics allows us to do is isolate the lifetime for things like the lifetime value of the customer, 
compared to the cost to serve and, and acquire the customer, right? Right. And so that's why we have things like LTV to CAC, right? Like three to one. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of people focus. We have things like payback period, mm-hmm. you know, like 12 months or less. And so pick your, pick your favorite unit economics or pick them all. And, and now we have to achieve positive unit economics before we're ready for rapid growth and moat the third phase. Okay. Now, similarly to the retention part in product market fit, um, unit economics are a bit of a lagging indicator and somewhat difficult for an account executive to grasp. It's very difficult for an account executive. You can't just go to a 27 year old account executive and be like, Hey, go out and do a bunch of work and produce an LTV to CAC above three. Like that. I I wouldn't even know where to start with that. Right. But these ultimate goals of LTV to CAC and payback period can be extracted back to near-term activities. How many meetings should we set every week? How many of those meetings should turn into a discovery call and a product presentation and a customer? How fast? And when they become customers, how much do they pay us? Those are pretty much the factors, right? right? Like, and so we have to take a, a moment to extract those, that, that unit economic objective back to those key activities. Mm-hmm. And that's what like, at least some portion of your go-to-market dashboard should be like, listen, if we, as long as we, our SDR set up five meetings a week, and as long as we convert, you know, uh, ultimately through the whole funnel, 5% of those meetings into customers within 60 days, and as long as those customers pay us more, you know, on average, 18,000 a year, then we will achieve our LTV to CAC goal. So now all we have to do is dashboard those key metrics and watch. Mm-hmm. And as long as, you know, we're able to um, execute against that, then we're ultimately going to spit out a positive unit economics business. So that now that we understand what go-to-market fit is, it's such a different implication on the go-to-market system design. Comp plan is so critical. That's going to drive CAC. Pricing mm-hmm. is so critical. That's going to drive LTV. Um, we need at least one scalable demand gen channel before we start hiring reps, whether it's content marketing or cold calling or through a partner channel. We need a playbook now. I can't hire 20 reps without a playbook. So I need someone that can build a playbook. So that first rep who's really good at seeing the patterns and talking to the engineers and getting a couple deals done isn't going to cut it right now. I need someone that can actually build a go-to-market playbook, discovery calls, presentations, negotiations, all that kind of stuff, right? So that that becomes the critical uh, components, okay? So once we get that stage, now we have product market fit and go-to-market fit, and now we're ready to scale. What is a common thing that you see all, all the different startups that you've advised work with? What do they get hang up on at that go-to-market fit stage? All those things are pretty tricky. Like, like we can hit, we can hit each one. Okay, go-to-market playbook design. Right. Let's start with that. Mm-hmm. Most people do show up and throw up. Most people, the they they can they they're like, what's your sales playbook? And they show me a demonstration deck. <laughs> this is not a playbook. I mean, just go go read any like well-researched sales playbook or anything Mm -hmm. like the whole key to sales is not giving a provocative presentation. It's about deeply understanding your buyer's needs and tailoring your pitch accordingly. 
Mm-hmm. So most sales playbooks I look at at this stage do not have a robust discovery process, discovering qualification process. So that's that would be the major issue there. Um, in terms of commission plans, oftentimes they'll delegate the plan to their head of sales and their head of sales uses the plan from the last company. And that company may have been doing hundreds of millions in revenue and you're doing two. <laughs> so <laughs> it's like, the biggest risk there is like, that's usually what happens. Um, most founders underappreciate how powerful the sales commission plan is to uh, reinforce their strategy. And I think in general, um, what is happening at this stage of a business is you're just trying to continue to bring in customers. Uh, you want to hit a certain revenue target, but you want to also preserve retention. And I think it's a surprise to most companies that retention issues are not usually rooted in product or onboarding. They're rooted in sales. Customer retention issues are rooted in sales, in the expectations that salespeople give to the customer. I, a, a really easy example is like, did the salesperson notify IT about the purchase so that IT knows they have to set it up? Mm-hmm. Like, Probably do you though. They didn't need to do it to get the signature, but they do need to do it to make sure this thing's successful, especially if there's any integration work. And if they don't, like IT is just going to ghost them. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, so, you know, you need to have some sort of core, you know, some sort of aspect of your commission plan to, to handle retention. So my favorite thing to do is to have, the salesperson get half their commission when the customer signs and the other half when the customer hits the lead indicator of retention, which is Going usually back to it. in the first 30 days. Yeah. So it's that yep. then you have a nice connection and they don't have to wait like a year uh, for the retention to occur. But you, so you found a nice way to make sure to keep the salesperson in check. Um, the biggest mistake on the pricing model is they increase prices too much and too early, you know, and there's, I've been in so many board meetings where it's like, oh, you folks are doing great. I think your price is too low. You should increase your prices. And even Wall Street's like, that's a big thing they report out. Yeah, you know, Salesforce was able to drive their average contract value up and the street loves it. And I don't, of course, that's amazing. Like the, to get more money out of your customers is great. Just do it on the expansion, not the first sale, mm-hmm. right? Because because what happens is if, you rate, if you're doing great, you, you're the category leader, you came up a new category and you're out of the gate, you're running fast, you're doing great, everyone's buying your stuff. Yeah, you probably can increase your price by 30 to 50% and it probably won't affect your sales cycle too much um, and you'll have a huge revenue lift because of it. But what people don't understand is you just become a more attractive target to a disruptor. You know what I mean? Right, like if they you're, can it, undercut you. They can undercut you. Unless yeah. you have some really great sustainable advantage, which that that too we don't quite understand well. But like, yeah, you'll get you'll get away with it for a year. But the, the bigger you jack up the price, the more frustrated the opening price, the more frustrated your customers will be. And the easier it is for some, you know, hotshot team of, of engineers from Google or Facebook to raise a bunch of money, build what you have, and charge half as much. Right. So you're so much better keeping the opening price low, keep that opening friction low, let mm-hmm. the customer make it easy for them to do business with you. And as you develop trust with them and show value, fine, expand it and mm-hmm. do it that way. You know, so that, that's, that's a big issue that happens on the pricing side. Do you think that 
most people get that wrong because they don't think about the recurring model yes. of what SAS does. Um, I don't think they appreciate the disruption effects. I don't, okay. the, the, the risks. I think they, I think, I think really like where it gets rooted is when you ask an entrepreneur, um, what is your sustainable defensibility against competition? They root that answer in a feature. And then I'll ask, okay, how long will it take for your competitor to build that feature? And they'll say three to six months. And that's not an advantage. That's a, that's a temporary advantage, not a sustainable advantage. So I think that's where it's rooted is they, they think they have a, they think their, their advantage is more sustainable and permanent than it actually is. And then they don't consider as much the disruptive risk. That makes complete sense. Is it at this stage where you have somebody who's acquiring new customers and then or who are trying to expand the account or do you mm -hmm. try to do that more in the, the growth emote stage? Um, it's usually happens like role specialization is a bigger deal in growth and moat. Um, usually yeah. during the go to market phase, if like, if during product market fit phase, you probably have mostly like you probably have one product manager and a bunch of engineers and you pretty much have like one salesperson, if one, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? But if you want to have a salesperson, great, just make sure it's hired the way I was talking about, like a combination of a product manager and account executive that can co communicate to engineers and see patterns. Um, I love it when founders place customer success manager in that place because they just stay close to things, right? So you don't have much of a go-to-market team during product market fit. The only thing that changes during go-to-market fit is you need someone to build a playbook. So usually you have someone that's more of like a sales manager type ability or you could bring in like a sales ops person to do it, but I think it's more someone who's actually executing the selling. Um, and just has codification ability. So it's usually one person like that that's in charge of designing and building the playbook and probably executing as well. And then you may have two or three other reps, salespeople. Um, and you, you're going to need a customer success manager too because you're going to bring on customers, at least right. to focus on onboarding. I don't know if you need to do a lot of expansion at that point because you honestly, like, I think a lot of companies are able to get through go-to-market fit phase in less than six months. And there's just mm -hmm. not as much like expansion opportunity there. Um, you probably have a customer success manager or an account executive that can help with that. But then once you get to growth and moat phase, yeah, now you've really got to think about, do you want to carve out cold callers and SDR or keep your account executives prospecting? Do you want to focus your account executives only on discovery and demo? Do you want to carve out the onboarding process to a CSM role? Do you want to carve out from there the account management process, which is more the expansion and renewals. And I've, you know, there was a lot of confusion post-sale over the last decade of like, do we, do we just have one post-sale person that's in charge of onboarding renewals and expansion, or do we have an account manager that is, does renewals and expansion and one person like a CSM that's only in charge of like onboarding and adoption of product. And a lot of the research is showing the latter is more optimal. Mm. You know, it's like, you have to be very careful that it's not too many cooks in the kitchen and it's a bad experience for the customer having to talk to all these different people. Right. But a lot of, a lot of the research shows that it's better to carve those out. And the, the into the, the thoughts and theories behind it is, you know, the customer kind of wants to talk about commercials to one person, like contracts, renewals, expansion, price, et cetera, mm -hmm. and just product and usage with another person. And when you mix mm -hmm. those, there's, there can be, a kind of a loss of trust or just some confusion. Especially if you think of it from the customer's point of view too. They want to be able to know that they can trust that individual yeah. and then also be able to work with the other one on the business side. It makes complete yeah, sense. Yeah, exactly. Yep.
so so kind of going back so the original question is like when to scale how fast you should fast. scale so, yep. and, and you got fast right and scale fast so if you've gone product market fit now have the unit economics how do you know that you have the right unit economics to start hiring and and, and putting on the the fuel yeah so go to market fit handle that right so like if we get we extracted our unit economic goal back to near-term activities of like number of appointments, conversion appointment, price per customer. And so now we know we've got go-to-market fit. So now we need to move into scale. And we kind of talked at the beginning how, you know, most organizations don't do that well. They lump some higher reps at the beginning of the fiscal year or right after a big raise. And, and I completely see why it happens. Like I, I, I helped tons of companies with this and helped them think through this. What happens is, it's going well at this point. And the entrepreneur goes out and raises capital. And of course, the entrepreneur wants to keep as much of their company as possible. So to do that, they have to negotiate a very big valuation. So to negotiate a big valuation, you have to show big numbers, big projections. And so that's what happens. And then the VC negotiate and whatever, and they end up there and then they do the big round. And then the entrepreneur is like, holy cow, now I have to go do this. And the VC is like, yeah, you better go do this. And that's why they hire 20 reps the next month. Without, without the, you know, the mental math of like what it really takes to do that. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so don't hire 20 reps in a one month, like we talked about, but think about your scale as a pace of hiring instead of 20 reps in January, two reps every other month for six months. Okay. Let's do, let's do two reps every other month for six months. That's a much more doable increase in the recruiting cycle the demand gen cycle, the training and management cycle, right? Mm -hmm. And what we're going to do is we're going to watch the leading indicators of retention, which was our indication of product market fit, and our leading indicators of unit economics, which was our, our definition of go-to-market fit, to see if they break. If they stay green and don't break, then we can increase the pace to two reps a month for six months. And if they continue to stay green and don't break, we can increase the pace to four reps a month and then mm -hmm. eight reps a month. So essentially those two lead indicator dashboards is what I call our speedometer. They tell you how fast we can go. And most organizations um, dictate their pace based on what competitive companies are doing, which has nothing to do about your business performance, but the speedometer tells you how your business is doing. And the other thing it tells you, like most people, use the, 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 the metrics they're looking at in their own business to decide if they're going too fast or too slow is their end of quarter P&L. But your end of quarter P&L is what happened in your go-to-market system a year ago. Right. Right. So, so this just makes it a far more near term and gives us a lot more of a scientific rigorous approach toward how fast we can actually tolerate scale. Right. And then if that speedometer drops down, okay, hey, pause. Yes. What, what happened? What's changed? What do we need to fix? Exactly. And then, and then start having those conversations. That so so many sense. advantages to this approach, right? Because it will break. Yeah. Give me one company that where it hasn't broken at some point. There's a lot of advantages to this approach is number one, you're going to know like six months before if you waited for the P&L. You're going to know so early. Number two, right. you're going to have better diagnosis on where it's broken. Shit, right. we missed our revenue number. Where's it broken? We'll do it. It's <laughs> like, that was six months ago. You know, like, yeah. um, and then that's allowing you to, to fix it faster. And you're right. going to know it's fixed. You don't have to wait for the P&L from the quarter to know it's fixed. You can see it in the lead indicator. Uh, uh, yep. Professor at Harvard Business School, 
you're going to design your own curriculum around sales and entrepreneurship, what would that curriculum book assignments, what should that look like if somebody's going to go out and do it on their own? To, to, to build a curriculum? Yeah. Like if, like what yeah. books or assignments should they? Yeah. Honestly, after? like, like we built, we, we built the entrepreneurship stuff. We build it a lot on lean startup. It's okay. really about like developing your business model and, and then to stepping that back into what are the key uncertainties, ranking those uncertainties in order of importance and then devising hypotheses and MVPs to go after those uncertainties. So it's a very lean startup. I think it's a wonderful methodology. Fantastic. Last question. What's a message you want to leave with listeners? Um, you know, just, I think the one common theme is like, don't be duped in, in, in using revenue as your early North star prematurely. Um, it's more about customer value creation and retention early on. And I think wonders happen in your startup. If you make that your first North star. Fantastic. Mark, thank you so much. All right, Walter. Thanks for the time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and write us a review to continue to reach other listeners like you. Also, if you'd like to see other great guests and stay up to date, please join our newsletter by visiting gotomarketpodcast.com. Once again, that's gotomarketpodcast.com.